This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. And for this special in-between seasons episode, well, I'm still Chris Kreitcho. I was about to say, are you someone else now? <laughs> That's a very special in-season, out-of-season change. Goodness. And you are... Oh, I thought you were going to, like, riff on that. Like, I'm Stephen Carradini, but it's, whatever. It's, it's late at night, and there's no riffing here. But oh, it's special. It is because special. Because... We have with us our guest and our friend, Jake Medor, who we've been talking about having on the show for like all of season seven. So welcome to the show, Jake. Thanks for having me on. All right, Jake, describe yourself in three sentences for people who've never heard of you. (laughs) Uh, I'm the editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy, uh, online Christian review of ideas, culture, politics, Um, author of a book called In Search of the Common Good, Christian Fidelity in a Fractured World. Um, that just came out from my VP. And I live in my hometown of Lincoln, Nebraska with my wife and three kids. You've gotten a lot of practice at that. Yeah. <laughs> that elevator pitch is strong. <laughs> I I have. So it, it took a while to get nailed down. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're glad to have you on the show. As Chris has noted, we've been teasing this to our audience the whole season. And so we're really stoked to, uh, to, to talk with you and discuss your book. And uh, we, the book itself, as he mentioned, is called In Search of the Common Good. It's from InterVarsity Press. And it's, we're going to talk a lot about it, but in a nutshell, it's an argument about why community has fallen apart, what we should do about it, and what we could do about it, which are not always the same thing. And so, Jake, I'll just let you start by asking the question that I love asking anybody who's written anything, which is, where did you stop short in the book, either by your own volition or by your editor's volition? Yeah, so there were three places um, that I thought of. Only three? That's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I could probably come up with more with more time, but one of them... So one of the funny things about the response to the book is that... I have simultaneously been accused of being a soft Marxist by some (laughs) readers and of being this kind of like Joe Biden, insufficiently radical, just wants to be in the center, blah, by other people. And it's, and I feel like I've had the same thing. And like some people have talked about the book is more hopeful than they were expecting. And some have found, especially the first half, really depressing. And so it's just a weird, I don't know what to do with the response, but I say all that because I think given some of the problems being described, you could talk about abortion being the most obvious one, but I think some of the things that are happening with the opioid crisis would be up there for me as well. I struggled with, is there a need to, like, what role should civil disobedience play Mm. if it is this bad? And I still don't know that I have a satisfactory answer to that. So that was one place. Another is just how to talk about uh, contraception in the chapter on membership. That's a hard Mm -hmm. one because on the one hand, it's kind of similar. The Atlantic had an essay the other day about why the abortion debate is not winnable um, by Caitlin Flanagan, where she kind of lays out the most extreme problems associated with not having legalized abortion and with having legalized abortion. And I kind of have the contraception debate version of that in my head as I'm writing that chapter, 
where on the one hand, I know of many Christian couples that enter into marriage with no intentions of having children, or even just go into marriage with the assumption being that we're going to spend 10 years to figure out our careers before we have kids. Mm -hmm. And when I hear those kind of things, I get really agitated and want to basically go Catholic on the contraception (laughs) question, because that vision of marriage just seems so far from the vision that the church has historically upheld. And yet, then on the other hand, I have these voices in my head of like couples that had more kids than they're able to support. And it creates all kinds of stress on the marriage. It creates lots of lifelong struggles in the children. Um, Sometimes it destroys the marriage. And so I kind of felt torn between the like evangelical yuppie bobo types that don't really even understand why kids are such a central good within marriage. And then the quiverful types who have genuinely like legit concerns about how some of these conversations can yeah. go. So that was another one where I just had very competing inclinations. Yeah, those are definitely the ditches on both sides of that issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think those are probably actually the two that kind of loomed over everything else. I think there is also, and we'll probably get here, so maybe I don't need to say too much now, but just the the issue on policy proposals as it concerns mm. economics. Right. I'm I feel relatively clear on what's wrong with our system right now. I feel way less confident about policy prescriptions to get out of where we are. Mm. Mm. Well, you've come to the right podcast. <laughs> we've we like from our first episode, we basically were like, here are some prescriptions. So you can just make any claim you want. That's what this podcast does. <laughs> We literally told John Piper that the Pope tweets better than him in our first episode and that he should tweet more like the Pope. We did. I I would not disagree with you on that one. (laughs) That's still true. Six years later, still Uh, true. Yeah. So one of the places where I drew that question from is that it looked like you stopped short on civil disobedience because the chapter just like abruptly closes with like, wait, there's like, (laughs) what happens if it's like really bad though? So one of the questions I had when it comes to the nature of the economy and the nature of uh, things that must be destroyed post haste, as I think you, you mentioned, what then should we do? Because this is not just like a question for your book. Like this is a kind of a central question for Christian action in the world over the last, I don't know, a thousand years is like how, how and when do you resist maximally? And when do you go Romans and say, live with the, the authorities? And how does that fit in with this whole community mindset? I guess the the easy answers, there's two easy answers that I think are things you can do regardless of where you go after that on civil disobedience. So I think two, the two easy answers, one is just that you get very serious about catechesis within churches, Mm -hmm. about why God gives his people wealth. And this is something like if you read some of the early Reformed and the Puritans, it's very interesting because they are not embarrassed about trying to acquire wealth. 
They are extremely aggressive, however, in pushing that you acquire wealth so you can give it away to those who don't have it. Right. And so it's a very, it doesn't map very well onto any of our kind of, these are the common views yeah. type lines of thought amongst Christians on these things. Either wealth is bad or right. wealth is great, cool, right. without that sort of structure of yeah. wealth is a means that you must be applying to the right ends. Right. And and like Bootser in Strasbourg, he would just straight up say that a person isn't really fully in Christ's fold, I think is the phrase he uses in one place, until they are practicing generosity with the wealth that God's given them. Yeah. He takes it incredibly seriously, and you see it reflected in the later Puritans. So I think getting serious about catechesis around these questions and making radical forms of generosity just a normal part of what we do as a church, mm-hmm. that's something that we should just be doing, period. Um, a second thing, I think, on a policy level is that a lot of the way our economy works right now is structured to reward companies that are already large and successful because our economy is biased toward employment. And if you look at, like this actually just came up in the last week, I think it was Indiana passed a bill that would give any company, quote unquote, that invests $750 million in data centers in the state, 50 years of sales tax exemption. So Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. Exactly. Because <laughs> those so, are the only ones who can do that. Right. Or Netflix, Netflix, technically. But. Right, exactly. But yeah, so it's basically, it's a 50-year sales tax exemption for three of the five biggest tech companies. And so they get another help because the state wants to attract them, which, I mean, Indiana feels like the other Midwestern states are attracting data centers. We want in on that too. Mm -hmm. That's why they do it. But the result of it is that you give yet another advantage to companies that don't really need any advantage at all because they already have the built-in advantage of not needing to make money. (laughs) Like Amazon does not really care if they're profitable. And most of their competitors don't have the luxury of not caring if they make a profit. And so... I think you can try to, on a policy level, take steps to whether it is like the thoughts that I've had are like, maybe you break up Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram. Maybe you break up Amazon's store from Amazon Web Services. Mm -hmm. But you take steps to try and make these incredibly powerful companies a little bit Mm -hmm. smaller and a little bit closer to actually having to compete with people. And the funny thing is, I don't know if that is a more capitalist instinct or a more leftist instinct. Because what I'm really talking about doing is trying to create more economic competition and lower the barrier to entry to the to various markets for small businesses and entrepreneurs. And I think more capitalistic types would really like that. On the other hand, the bulk of the energy right now in American politics to break up big tech companies is on the left. So I don't know where that puts me relative to (laughs) right-left economic debates. Well, obviously, you're a soft Marxist, so. (laughs) Of course, yes. (laughs) Obviously. Um, obviously. That's how they work. (laughs) But I think you can do policy things like that. Those are the two easy ones. After that, when you have to start talking about civil disobedience, it just gets a lot harder. But I don't think there's a world where doing the two things I've described is a bad idea or is somehow rendered 
redundant by any other things we might do. Yeah, I think that's true. That leads somewhat interestingly into one of the other themes you hit on a lot in your book, which is the nature of work and the ways in which work has been hollowed out or broken down in certain ways. So I have sort of a two-pronged question here, and one of them is very high level, and that's just to say, how do you see work and the biblical picture of a restored world where things are good and right again? How do those fit together in your frame for thinking about this? But then also to turn that a little bit and say, and then how do we live accordingly, live in that direction in the meantime, specifically because, as you and I have talked about in other contexts many, many times, not all of us are cut out to be small-town people or farmers. And a lot of the the focus on your book, and, and I appreciate this, especially because that's where a lot of the hollowing out in America in particular has happened, but a lot of the focus of your book was that direction. So as we think about how you answer that first part of the question in a sort of restoration of humanity to its right end direction as pertains to work, what does that look like not just for small communities of blue-collar workers, but for tech nerds like me or people working in a university context like Stephen or Mm -hmm. more generally the urban as well as the suburban and rural crowds? I think it's probably often happens when you have a project like this, you discover books after you've <laughs> done it. Yeah. So I'm actually reading Hannah Arendt. I don't know, I hope I'm saying her name right. Um, the human condition right now. And she makes an interesting distinction between labor and work. And so for her labor is what we do in order to live. It's the things that we do to provide for our material existence in the world mm-hmm. um, so that we have food, shelter, clothing, etc. And, and she descri- she distinguishes between the laboring human and the work of our hands. So work is the stuff that we do that has kind of a, a timeless characteristic to it. It's not something where like, well, I cooked this meal and an hour later it will be gone and there will be no evidence in the world of my having done this because I'm just having to do this to live. When we work, we're doing things with our hands to try and create something that wasn't there before, something that is delightful, um, something that enriches your experience of the world or your neighbor's experience of the world in some way. I'm still... I find that distinction interesting. I need to go back and reread it again because she's just kind of dense and I want to make sure I'm following her. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that kind of dense is a good description for Hannah Arendt. Yeah. But I wish I would have had that distinction in hand. Well, just to see how I could have used it when writing those chapters. I think you already did a pretty good job of distinguishing between bullshit jobs and real work. And I think that kind of maps pretty quickly onto it. Yeah, I think it probably does. But so on the high level, I think one of the problems we have, and this comes up in lots of different spheres, like I just saw something the other day on Twitter, Fred Sanders tweeted something, Derek Rishmeli had posted a thread about, I think it was the atonement. And then Fred said something about how it's almost as if if you extract just one theme of something from a theological doctrine, 
it creates lots of confusion because you're not seeing the whole picture. And I think that happens in lots of places. And what I'm trying to criticize in the book about work is that I think one aspect of work, which is the way it's the way we provide for ourselves physically to live has come to dominate all other aspects of work. Yeah, I think that's true. Such that we don't really know how to think about work outside of those marketplace-based terms. Um, there was just a column the New York Times had a couple weeks ago. The headline was something like, "Why or can the rich just stop working? No. And the column was about how they talked to all of these very wealthy, very well-off people who don't really need to work to get by, but just don't even know who they are or what they would do with themselves if they didn't have that job. And that gets really dangerous, I think, because it pulls you away from family, it pulls you away from friends, it pulls you away from your church, it distorts your sense of who you are, and it makes you really a slave to your company or to your line of work because you don't know what else you could do or who you even are. And so that's the critique I want to make is to say, it's not that we should just toss out the marketplace considerations when thinking about work, but that there are other factors to consider as well. When Jesus said that the great commandment is to love God and love neighbor, that applies to our work. And so if you have occasions to love neighbor effectively through your work, because like the example I use in the book is a couple I know where the one of them makes enough money that the other doesn't need to have a job. And what I think a lot of people in that spot would do is the second person in the relationship would also keep their job. And then it's, Hey, bigger house, Hey, more vacations, Hey, more consumer goods, etc. And what they've done is they're like, well, we actually like where we live. We like our house. We like our, way of life as it is. And this means that Greg can help with youth soccer. It means that he can run a food distribution ministry out of our church. And so Greg doesn't have a full-time job, but he does more work than most people I know. It's just, it's the kind of work that the market doesn't really, either the market doesn't know how to recognize, or we've structured our markets in such a way that it's not recognized. I'm not sure which of it it is. But it's necessary work. There are people in Lincoln that eat because of Greg's choice yeah. to run a food food distribution ministry rather than keep a full-time job that his family doesn't actually need. And so I, I wanted to foreground work as an opportunity to love neighbor in that chapter and kind of background the marketplace considerations, not because they don't matter, but because they've become so dominant in how we think about work yeah. that a lot of other things have been left out. Yeah. The reason I wanted to start with this conversation is because a, our listeners will be really familiar with a lot of this because we've talked about a lot of these concepts in winning slowly. Secondly, it's because Chris and I agreed with a lot of this chapter. We have ever and always minor quibbles, but we <laughs> we both thought that this was a really strong section of the book and just wanted to discuss it a little more with you because it was great. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really clear description and also clear proscription of, of the sort of troubles that work causes for community and how we can get out of it. I think that's really great. Okay, as promised, we hated the way that you used John Locke. <laughs>
for the listeners out there, John, I, I, I'm not exaggerating here. There's a sentence in the book that claims that John Locke is responsible for expressive individualism. Am I misinterpreting that, Jake? That's not quite the claim. Okay, well, how, how, would, but... you, how would you interpret your own <laughs> statement there? Because that's what Chris and I both sort of read out of that sentence. So the claim that's made in the book, which I would phrase differently now, just to state that up front, is that what you get when you... So the, the section from the second treatise that I quote in the book is something to the effect of that man's property, which he obtains through labor, is his and no one else's. Yep. And my concern with that is that it is actually in kind of the way we were just talking about isolating the fruit of one's labor, isolating one's wealth from any claims outside of the individual's will. So that's the concern. I would not say, and I think I even say this in the book, that Locke himself would object to the way that this idea has developed over time. I do say that in the you book. You do, you do. So I think there is that as well. Yeah. The The way I would want to frame it now, and maybe this is where Arendt is helping me, is I think it's inaccurate to say that Locke absolutizes property rights, which is the way I put it in the book. I think it is still it is a, a more defensible claim to say that establishing labor as the basis for property rights is tricky and that there might be other bases for how we understand how one comes to own property that would be more like a little bit more solid less prone to the kind of abuse because I do think we have the idea today certainly of property rights in the way that I describe in the book. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's necess- That's what Locke is going for. But the thing I'm describing exists today. Oh, yeah. We, we, think, we think that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and is very bad. Yes. Yeah, I, I do think that's bad. I think that my, my main argument about that, one, is the one that you tried to defray afterwards, which, uh, which is that that's not what he was intending. And so blaming him for what other people have done with this stuff is a little bit like blaming God for people using the Bible badly, which seems, <laughs> seems, right. seems rough. But the second thing that I saw in there is that that claim abstracts what Locke was doing from its context, which was he was arguing specifically mm-hmm. against, in both treatises, the divine right of kings, which said that your labor is not your own and your things that you make are not your own right. because God said they belong to this other person who was through essentially random appropriation <laughs> given a right of Adam's lineage. This is Sir Robert Filmer's point. And so it feels like that the argument that you made is an extension of the problem of the the far end of what he says. What he was saying was an argument against a particular type of problem historically grounded that, you know, if you did a whole bunch of good things, you still wouldn't get the benefits of that. And it had nothing to do with your right. community. It had mostly to <laughs> right. do with rich aristocrats. Yes. Okay, good. No, I, I, Right. No, and I, I would say that that's a fair critique. I would want to frame this. 
I don't know how exactly I would write it differently if I were doing it differently now. Sure. Um, I haven't really thought about that because what's the point? But um, <laughs> I mean, the book's like the copy is out of my hands at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's a good right. book. When yep. the second edition comes out, now you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think there's several different claims that I blurred together mm. in those paragraphs. And it would have been the the book would have at least that chapter would have been stronger if I had been more precise with the concern there. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, so Arndt in Human Condition argues that traditionally labor, because it is menial, because it does not endure, because it's the kind of stuff that we just have to do because we have no choice as human beings, was traditionally kept out of public life. It was the domain of slaves and of women in the home. And what ends up happening once you, quote unquote, emancipate labor in that way, what really ends up happening is everything becomes labor. And Mm. so everything becomes defined by the same kind of toil and insecurity of pre-modern labor. Hmm. It's interesting because it sounds, not having actually picked up and read The Human Condition, but your description of it sounds to me almost like a perfect inversion of the classic reformed view of labor and particularly the Lutheran view of labor, which is that it's all Mm -hmm. sanctified, that it is twisted and fallen is broken, but that it's all a sanctified good and should be appreciated as such. Thus Luther's point about the milkman, but that is certainly menial labor going and milking a cow and delivering it to someone is as menial as it gets in that regard. Yes. But I think the the thing that, aren't as seeing and anticipating is really what we've come to have today mm-hmm. where it's very difficult to identify what work most people do understood on her terms because most people work in the marketplace out of necessity yeah. in order to live. And so her critique of Locke fits into that where Locke takes one component of the things that humans do in the world mm-hmm. and makes it central right. and asks it to carry a weight that it can't carry mm. with the result being that we're now in this position where work has kind of been devoured by labor. And this leads to a certain kind of alienation that a lot of people feel from work. I think that's potentially true, but I think partially it has to do with the telos of work and labor. So if the telos of labor is somebody else's getting rich, then you have John Locke saying, that's a bad telos for that. And then if it turns out that everything is labor, then you have people saying, well, you know, that's not a good telos for that either. It should be that you should be working unto the Lord as, as unto men. You know, and then you have people further on saying, like, well, we don't have God anymore, and it's still a bad telos, so, like, what are we going to do about that? <laughs> like, so I, I think a lot Repent. of it... Uh, re- <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with telos, and I think this ties in to one of our questions from your last chapter, where you go through and you talk about the redeemed kingdom or the, the coming kingdom. Mm. And I I wanted to know where work fits into that in your mind. And this is not like a pointed question where I have an opinion, Mm -hmm. but like it was something that I felt 
I wanted to see more of in that chapter since it is mm. such a big part of your book, and I I just didn't feel it. Hmm. Interesting. So the starting point I think for me is I, and I'm processing lots of things like continuing to oh yeah I'm continuing to read and think rightly so there's a major question in the background that Brad East just pointed out in his review about the relationship between grace and nature and I'm strongly inclined although I could be persuaded otherwise potentially to follow Bavink on this and Bavink argues that grace restores nature so it's not that there's this i mean using the admittedly extremely simplistic and deeply unfair to thomas two-story thing that francis schaefer does it's not that there's this lower story called nature and this upper story called grace and that the gospel like elevates us out of that um, or rescues us from it it's that in the world to come christ comes down to earth and he restores things here the eternal city descends is what Revelation says. Yeah. And so I I think what I would want to say is that the work that we're doing now is the work of eternity, with the caveat being that with marriage and family, there's some changes that we need to acknowledge in the eternal state. <laughs> um, but I think God gives humanity the world to enjoy to cultivate, to develop. And he does that before sin enters the world. And I don't really see an argument that we would stop doing that after he's returned. Mm. I think we do it without toil, Mm -hmm. but I don't see evidence in scripture that there is some other kind of calling that humanity has other than to love God and love neighbor and to do it through work through relationship with one another in membership and through uh, rhythms of work and rest and worship. And I don't know, I'm, I'm still in process on that one, but that's That's fair. (laughs) That's fair. I want to push a little in that direction then, because a couple of the things you've said have been bouncing around in my head over the last few minutes. It seems to me that one of the possible problems for Arendt's framing and the meniality of labor is actually very, very well demonstrated in the example you give in the book and to which you referred earlier of someone doing the menial labor of serving food to people who need to be served food. I think we would normally look at that as Christians and as plenty of non-Christians among our listeners and say, that's that's good. That may be menial and it may be toilsome in many ways, but it's it's good, and the work in that sense, the production, is not a thing that's happening. So we can point to ways that might or might not fit with Locke's construal of things. But it's hard for me to look at that and see anything there except that this is a good of the sort that will endure into, in Scripture's terms, eternal crowns of glory for the people who've served quietly and in the most menial contexts, in fact. So what would you what would you make of that? How would you I, kind of... I, I, ba- I basically want to know, like, what toil is, essentially. Like, I mean, hmm. there's, like, an obvious answer, but, like... From a theoretical perspective of this kind of argument, what is toil? That's a that's a good way to frame it. Man, I'm reluctant to say what I think Arndt is doing because I want to I want to go back and <laughs> I I've that's read totally the chapters fair. a couple times, but I'm still 
trying to follow everywhere she's going. I, I think the a lot of what is toilsome for Arendt would be that there's nothing that lasts that is a product of labor because we consume all of it mm-hmm. because we need to to live. Um, yeah. And relatedly, that it, it is work that is taken up out of necessity. And so that is kind of by definition can't really how to say this if you're doing something entirely because it's necessary it's not something that is able to be done from love Mm. it's the example piper gives in desiring god of like if i brought flowers home for my wife and she thanked me and i said (laughs) oh it was my duty that's not what she wants to hear that's 100 accurate (laughs) (laughs) you might get smacked with those flowers at that point (laughs) right so I think those are the concerns that are kind of animating Arendt and saying that in kind of privileging work in some ways, although she has criticisms of work as well that I'm still trying to follow. So I think that would be where her focus on defining toil would probably kind of hang mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's it's correct to say that certainly one of the dominant images in scripture of the good life is feasting. That's true. And feasting is growing food. It's preparing food. Um, and these are not glamorous things. These are not things that last for centuries to be enjoyed by all, or that like right. provide some massive improvement in quality of life for thousands of people. Like that doesn't happen from preparing a really extravagant feast for some families from your church. And yet in scripture, that's the, I mean, arguably when you think about the age to come, like a wedding feast is the central image of that. It strikes me that Lewis's note that you've never met a mere mortal is perhaps part of the necessary cutting of these Gordian knots that the framing to use Stephen's word, the telos of the labor seems essential to its mm-hmm. toilsomeness or not though of course even even labor oriented in the right direction can certainly be toilsome to us because right. it's mm-hmm. broken thorns and thistles but it seems to me that that gives a framing for the kind of work that one might be doing that no it might not endure in the way that mm-hmm. a piece of statuary does or that a great architectural edifice does or whatever else along these lines a symphony or something that way but there is an impact that actually outlasts any of those things insofar as our work is actually genuinely oriented at serving our neighbor, at loving our neighbor. So something that I was very fortunate, this might seem like a left kind of out of left field way to go at first, but maybe it will become clear. So when I was in college, I just did this, I did, I was an English major. And so we, I took almost every poetry class I could and thus got to read a lot of poetry over a couple of years in college. And I remember in the same semester, I was in an American lit survey where we read Anne Bradstreet. And I was in a, she was a 17th century American poetess, um, first published poet in America, actually, because her family loved her work and published it without her knowing. That's rad. <laughs> and she's, I, I really like her a lot. So she has this poem that she wrote when her family gives her this volume of her poetry that they've published without her knowing called the author to her book. And it's this kind of frustrated mother 
that is looking at her misbehaving child running about in public and is kind of embarrassed, but also just (laughs) still loves them and is... But so Bradstreet in this poem writes, I just pulled it up, my rambling brat in print, should mother call, I cast thee by as one unfit for light, the visage was so irksome in my sight, yet being mine own at length affection would thy blemishes amend, Mm. if so I could. And so it's, there's this sense of frustration that I think any artist has probably felt at some point with the imperfection of the work, Mm -hmm. but there's also this um, undercurrent of affection that runs through the whole poem. And so the way it ends, if for thy father asked, say thou hadst none, and for thy mother, she alas is poor, which caused her thus to send thee out of door. So there's a playfulness to it, because she really does enjoy the work and feels a certain fondness for it, even as she more than anyone else sees its imperfections. And what's so interesting is the same semester I have this American poetry survey, modern American poetry, where we read Plath. And Plath has a poem basically dealing with the same problem called stillborn. And the first line is, these poems do not live. It's a sad diagnosis. They grow their toes and fingers well enough, their little foreheads bulged with concentration. If they missed out on walking about like people, it wasn't for any lack of mother love. And it's likening the the same act that Bradstreet likens to the mother watching the unruly child run about. Um, Plath likens to a stillbirth. And I've always been so struck by that distinction between these two both extraordinary women poets and how differently they relate to their work. And I wonder if that is maybe getting at part of the distinction we're talking about here, Mm -hmm. where for Bradstreet, there is still this kind of pleasure that she has in it because she feels confident that this is something God has gifted her to Mm -hmm. do and given her to do. She writes poems as expressions of love for her family. She writes very ambitious world history poems it's really astonishing the the range of her work and she's very aware of its inadequacies because what poet is not but she also delights in it and in some sense is able to see what good things are happening in it and plath struggles enormously to do that the last two lines of plath are but they are dead and their mother near dead with distraction and they stupidly stare and do not speak of her Maybe that is the distinction that we're talking about here in terms of how we think about the quote-unquote menial tasks of life. Mm, yeah. um, are we able to look at them and see the good things in them that God has given us to do, the abilities he's given us? And does that recognition allow us to enjoy them, even while being aware of the difficulties or does the sense that there's not really any telos here just kind of rip out the whole, rip the floor out from under you and just kind of leave you flailing, which is the the sense I get from lots of Plath's poetry is it's this very dramatic and dark and desperate kind of writing. I don't know. Like that, that was just, as you were talking about labor and menial tasks, I just kind of thought of those two poems and what's striking, perhaps especially there, is that poetry, I think, is in the bucket that would seem to more obviously not be 
labor mm-hmm. in this sense, but would be work, but that the, the telos and the structure of it matters enormously. Yeah. I know nothing of Bradstreet, but I know more than that about Plath. And I would, I would wonder, and this leads directly into your membership uh, concept into, into Sabbath rest as well, that Plath's life was sort of marked by an inability to achieve due to external factors, continuous external factors. And so uh, one of those was uh, a sense of profound isolation due to the inability to be a part of literary society that she felt that she needed to survive, literally at the end of her life. So given that this is, we're now tying work to community, I'm I'm doing that thing right now. (laughs) How do you see as people, as Christians, as people who are interested in the communal life that you point towards, which is uh, uh, undoubtedly attractive, how does the desire for community and the desire for work, good work, uh, not labor, contrast or work together? I like that question. So if you begin by saying that work is primarily an occasion to love neighbor, then you've already assumed a relationship between people that is somehow called forth or brought into being through work. So it's it's not that community is this kind of add-on to our work that really makes it feel meaningful or something. I think if you're thinking about work as an occasion to love the people that God puts in front of you, then you, you've kind of hardwired community into your understanding of it just from the beginning. Mm. And I think that's an important piece. I think also one of the things that can happen a lot um, is that, so we're busy. We live a long way away from people. We don't see each other. We don't see our friends often. And so relationships kind of become this thing that you do. They become labor. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. So you make a note on your, Moleskin or your Google calendar or whatever to go get coffee with this person. Um, And yeah, it fits on the to-do list with all the other things you do. And what I think we should be aspiring to, I I think about many of the the best memories I have of friendship and a tangible sense of belonging. I'm trying to avoid using the word community because it's so overused. (laughs) I I can remember this was probably eight years ago now. It would be at least eight because Joey and I didn't have kids yet. We did a harvest dinner at our pastor's house with two or three other couples from church. But we all, so our job was we all went to the farmer's market that morning and got things that were in season from local folks. And then we met up at the pastor's house and prepared the meal together and then sat and ate it together. And then just, I think somebody had made a dessert and a couple people had brought some wine and we just sat around the table and we were probably at the table for like three or four hours and it did not feel like that at all. And the funny thing is I haven't talked to any of the folks other than my pastor who isn't in Lincoln anymore, but I still talk to him sometimes. He's the only one in that group that I've talked to recently. And yet I still have such a, the impressions that that evening left on me is very deep. Yeah. And I think it's because we were doing something that we had to do, but we were making a point of doing it together 
doing it in a way that just quite literally aligned with the life of our part of the world because we were eating what had been harvested that week from local farmers. And because we were doing it together, you know, there are people that had cooked different things. They had different skills. They were able to make different dishes. And so it made the whole meal better. Yeah. And so I think that's the kind of thing I, I can remember. I also remember when we were, Joey did an apprenticeship at a farm for four months, I think, in Northwest Iowa several years ago. So we it's small town Iowa. So everything is a long way away because rural America. And so the church that we were attending while we were there was up in Storm Lake, which was about a 45 minute drive for us. And because it was a 45 minute drive and we had an 18 month old, um, we actually would just go to the pastor's house for dinner every week or for lunch every week after church. And we would lay Davy Joy down for her nap there. And then we would just hang around until she woke up. And so we would be there from like 12, 15 until four or five in the afternoon. And they were just these kind of leisurely days where we didn't have anywhere to be. And we were able to just be together. And I don't remember any particularly complicated meals. Like Heidi would just do crockpot stuff because pastor's family, church, Sunday morning, you want to just get home and have food. You do not want to have to cook because you're worn out. And so we would just come to their home to some fairly simple soup dish or something like that. But then we didn't have anywhere to be. So we did dishes together and then we sat down and there was this kind of, well, what do you guys want to do conversation? And so there was one week we watched a movie. There was one week most of us went to the lake to go sailing while a couple people stayed at the house to be with Davy. And so it just created a space where we could be together without having anything else to do and without feeling a kind of obligation to like, well, we have an hour to get coffee. These are the things I wanted to talk to you about. Let's get through them. Um, We didn't really have anything like Barry talks about loafing in his novels a lot. Um, and that's kind of what we were doing. And I don't think there's a lot of occasions for people to loaf. I would like right to now. state for the record that it took almost an hour for Jake to mention Wendell Berry. This is amazing. This is the greatest. I'm really proud of you, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> that's like for the five <laughs> listeners who also know Jake. Sorry. <laughs> I, I want to ha- tie that into our last fairly serious question here as we kind of hit the end of time. And then I have... Stephen and I have one more less serious but absolutely delightful, in our opinion, question that I think we're going to ask all of our interview guests from now on. The more kind of serious one is, it strikes me in your description of that, that it's integrally connected, and your experience of community in both of those cases was integrally connected with rest, Mm -hmm. with the idea of Sabbath that you hit in the book. And this is a thing I've touched on occasionally in other contexts, and I don't think we've talked about a lot on the show. So I think it's worth teasing that out a little bit here and how that fits into this picture, maybe especially how it's an essential ingredient of diffusing some of the ways that work is deformed in our context. Yeah. So I think part of all the things we've talked about with work, one aspect of that is that it does make it very hard to even 
kind of conceptualize what like a healthy routine of rest would look like because like going back to that New York times piece, if you are a person who does not need to have a job in the marketplace, but does because you don't know what to do with yourself or who you are apart from that, a day of rest is not going to be a pleasant, pleasant experience for you because you won't know what you're supposed to be doing. Um, You're going to be fidgeting with your phone and checking your email all the time. And it, you'll just feel very out of place, I think, because you're not in a place that you know and where you understand what you're supposed to be doing and who you are. So I think the the difficult relationship with rest in some ways maybe speaks to the relationship of alienation that a lot of people feel just kind of in their bones on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, It, it strikes me, I've been thinking and reading, uh, again, Bruner, in Divine Imperative, he says that Robinson Crusoe is kind of the quintessential Enlightenment novel. And I've been struck, like, the, the novel that I've kind of been butting up against as I'm working on book number two is uh, Lord of the Flies, which is also a desert island novel. <laughs> and it's striking to yeah. me that some of our defining novels of modernity are people stranded on islands, and what do they do? <laughs> um, right. And I think that's the experience that a lot of people have is they live on an island. And when they're not able to be on the island doing the work needed to maintain the island, they don't know what they're supposed to be doing or who they are. Yeah. They feel adrift. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, those are literal islands. And then you can just like, as soon as you start thinking about metaphorical islands and like the whole pantheon of literature, 1940 to 1990 is mm-hmm. available to you, basically. Like 1984, like metaphorical island, <laughs> uh, Brave New World, metaphorical islands of entertainment. Like you just start checking the box and go all the way down, and like it's about isolation. Yeah, yeah, that's really fascinating. Yeah, Bruner's quote. I just got it from the book. Is the whole of modern philosophy is a Robinson Crusoe affair, hmm. which is has struck with me. But yeah, so I, I think when you live on islands, it becomes very difficult to understand your life outside of that island. With apologies to our people who live on actual islands. <laughs> <laughs> of course. They're not stranded on desert islands. For that that is true. true. I'm not sure desert islands actually exist. I don't think it's like possible. <laughs> like that seems like a thing that wouldn't parts of, actually... Parts of islands can be yeah. deserts. Yeah, there you go. And so I think one of the things that's a challenge is to actually be at home in the place that God has called you to um, and in the world Mm. as God has made it. And so there's this weird kind of thing for me, like being from Nebraska, I've lived here nearly my entire life and I feel a very deep connection to the place. But what's funny about it is that for long story reasons, I don't need to get into here. The people that I grew up with, there is actually now the the last person has left the church. There is no one from the church that I grew up with that still is still at that church that talks to me. So the first 17, 18 years of my life, the entire community that existed around me is not part of my life, except for my parents. And the closest friends I had in college, all of them except one, no longer live in Lincoln. And the one who lives in Lincoln just moved back here a few months ago. So it's not really the relationships 
that keep me here in a certain sense, other than my parents, um, because a lot of the relationships have changed. It's that like when I, I, I think it might be my favorite part of traveling when I'm coming back home and I'm flying in Omaha and I can look down and see a city that I know, even though it's not Lincoln, it's Omaha, but I know it, I've gone to Omaha for things for my whole life. I know it well. Um, and I can see the cornfields and I, I see this place that I recognize and I feel at home there. Yeah. I think that's a really important experience. And if you don't have that experience of a place, you're going to need something else to be your home. And I don't know how well those something else's can carry that weight. Yeah. Okay. So for our final question. So the question is, Jake, you're in charge of technological development that occurs over the next 80 to 150 years. And you have to pick between these two options. Do we get really, really, really great virtual reality? Or do we get sustainable cross-country travel? And the assumption in both cases is that we figure out a way to make this less awful than at first blush we think it might might be. It's essentially, it's in in a perfect situation for both of these right working as well as that thing could work working as well as that thing could work which do you think would be better for community i mean the honestly the the question i hear when you ask this is which form of displacement is preferable and i'm not sure that either is <laughs> that that's the most jake netterian thing i could have ever imagined you saying congratulations that is awesome <laughs> but if if there is some kind of perfected form and I have to choose one, then it's actually going to other places ha! because you you are actually getting to see places that are not your own, to eat food that is new to you, to hear languages that you don't know, um, to walk on streets that you've never seen before. Like one of the most fun experiences I've I've had in recent years was the first time I went to New York City, the first time I was ever in Manhattan. So I was there with Susanna Black, who's one of our associate editors at Miro and a good friend of mine. And her family's been in New York for a hundred years. So you get to experience Manhattan with this person who feels about New York the way I feel about Nebraska. Um, and to see Manhattan the way that she sees it. And it was just such a wildly different experience than anything I've had in any other Mm -hmm. big city I've visited for the first time. Um, It didn't feel as overwhelming, which it's weird to say that like my first time in Manhattan felt less overwhelming than like the time I went to Jacksonville for the Huskers bowl (laughs) game. But it, it, that's just the way it was because I was there with a person who loves this place and is at home in it. And so she could help me see things that I wouldn't have seen and to kind of make sense of what I was seeing. And so I think if if you can travel and have that kind of opportunity to see a place with somebody that knows it well and loves it, there's not really anything like it. That's fair. That's fair. My argument. So that's, so you're on the Chris side of this argument. My, (laughs) my argument was that if if I, I live in Phoenix right now, which is four hours from everywhere. <laughs> my uncle, my aunt and uncle live in Phoenix, so yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's four hours from everywhere. If if I had cross-country travel of any speed, I would not be here at all, ever. I would just go to other places that have things, because Phoenix doesn't. <laughs> and so, if my argument was that if there was virtual reality, I could like 
you know, on a random Tuesday where I could like virtual reality something and then I could like not have to like spend a week there and then I would Wednesday night be also able to go to my community group. But anyway, your argument is also <laughs> accepted and valid. And so we're just going to keep, keep <laughs> well, doing this. We're just going to keep score from yeah, here on yes. out. Though. Every time we have a guest on. As long on. as they don't listen to the podcast, because then it's going to be totally... Well, actually, it might be even more It'd interesting be even that better point, that but, way. <laughs> yeah, it, might, it would be. But anyway, thank you so much, Jake. If uh, <laughs> if you Once you write that second book, please uh, come back on the show. We'd love to talk with you more. Yes, indeed. Um, for all of you listeners, uh, it's called uh, In Search of the common good uh christian fidelity in a fractured world it will of course be linked in the show notes it will be linked in the show notes it's really great uh it it is as jake mentioned at the beginning a bit of a difficult read at the beginning but that's necessary to set up what is a really excellent middle and end so uh do not be afeared by the difficulties of the beginning <laughs> but it's a it's a good book that's why we wanted to talk to jake about it and uh we want we commend it to you all but those like two pages about Locke. just kidding just kidding just kidding <laughs> <laughs> thank you again jake thank oh, you man. so much you, you should have been in slack for those conversations no no so i told chris i was not steven would have gotten nothing I, done. that's what i said i was like i have to actually get something done for the next three days like Okay. <laughs> the point is, we can have these disagreements and uh, and still enjoy each other and still have a really great book. It's really great. Quite so. Well, thank you. Thank you, as always, to everyone who sponsors the show, whether on Patreon at patreon.com slash winning slowly or at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly, particularly including Nathaniel Blaney. We will just keep shouting you out yep. every episode. We love it. We also want to remind everybody that everything in the show is Creative Commons, attribution, do what you want with it. Just give us the credit for it when you do so, please. That's right. You can reach us at uh, hello at winningslowly.org, at Scaradini, at winningslowly, uh, on Facebook, theoretically, although we don't check it very much. And uh, you can also just flag us down <laughs> on the street if you happen to be in our area. But for real, like if you're in the area and you're a Winnie Slow listener and you're like in Colorado Springs or Phoenix, email us and email we'll us. like meet up and Please. get a drink of your choice. That's how it works. So this is the last episode until uh, probably January. So until then. Unless we record an episode about the rise of Skywalker. We will not rule that possibility out. Yeah, we did that before and it was a lot of fun. So maybe it is. But if it is, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, all the holidays to you. <laughs> and as always, thanks, thanks for, listening. for listening. And I still don't know that I have a satisfactory answer to that. See, if you liked Locke enough, you would know the answer to that question. <laughs> spoilers spoilers i'm just i'm just just not gonna it's gonna come up a bunch of times (laughs) it's gonna come up that's fine but um like mixing your labor with the ground or something
<laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. We'll get there. Uh, yes, <laughs> please carry yeah. on. I, I actually, I actually kind of disagree with that characterization, Chris. So, like, I'm <laughs> no, on Team so, Jake. On so that do one. I. I. It, it was just an easy setup. That, <laughs> I'm referencing. I'm, was... I'm referencing Locke for listeners, and we'll get we're there. We're gonna later. make. We're gonna get that question next, so we get it out of the way. <laughs> yes, we will. Sorry, I everyone. Know that gonna, I don't know that it's gonna get out of the way. I feel like the second half of the episode is just gonna be John Locke. <laughs> well, that's. I have already promised Chris that I won't do that to you. So it will be all Chris. <laughs> if that happens okay <laughs> we'll see <laughs> <laughs> sorry can you say that one more time i just want to make sure I'm- yeah sorry i i got rambly there oh, um yeah no, you're fine. the question is you're fine. what about rest how does that work <laughs> <laughs>